Two weeks ago, we noted that during the first three hours of Jesus' experience on the cross, Mark detailed the activities of four different groups of people. There were, first, the pagan Roman soldiers, who we find oblivious to the truth. Secondly, you have the religious Jews who mocked the truth. Thirdly, the masses who remained ignorant of the truth. And finally, you discover two transgressors, two thieves, to Jesus' right and his left, who reviled the truth. Then last week, we saw how following three hours of global darkness, Mark focuses in on Jesus, his experience on the cross, and his final moments before giving up the ghost. So the first three hours, Mark focuses on four groups of people. The second three hours, he focuses on this darkness. Following that, Jesus, his experience before dying. Now that Jesus has passed, this morning, Mark is going to focus our attention onto three other groups of people that were involved in the crucifixion proceedings. Verse 39 of Mark chapter 15, we read, So, when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that Jesus cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Now it's easy to get to a verse like this and just to quickly pass over it without understanding or digging into the significance of the moment, especially the significance for this man, this centurion. So we should start by at least considering what we know of the centurion. First, we know that as a centurion, this man was a professional officer of the Roman army. Most centurions, according to history, probably were in direct command of about 80 men, although you can build an argument that there were certain instances where a centurion would have direct charge from men anywhere from 200 to even 1,000 legionnaires. So he was a man of authority. How much authority, we don't know, but a man of authority nonetheless. Since the centurion, obviously, is stationed in Judea, and Judea was a hotbed of rebellious revolutionary activity, this centurion would have had to have been a habituated, battle-hardened veteran of war. He was not a rookie. He was not wet behind the ears. This man had been engaged in battles before. It's why he's in Judea. And we can also assume by the nature of his vocation that he had to have been in some ways calloused to human life. To be engaged in warfare in the first century as a Roman, to have shed blood, it was a very personal exercise. Mano y mano, man on man, sword against sword. To take another's life was to protect your own. This man, through his experiences, through the nature of his vocation, you can imagine that he possessed in some ways like very little regard for human life. Now, obviously, he, he felt akin to Roman life, but dogs like the Jews? Well, he could care less. The other thing we know about the centurion from Scripture is that as a Roman, as a centurion, the man would have first been polytheistic. He would have believed in a multitude of gods. This was consistent with most Romans during the day. But he would have also been, though though he'd claim to be polytheistic, if he whittled it down, he's probably nothing more than a practicing pagan. This means 
that his chief recreation, his chief pursuit would have been hedonism. When off the clock, the man would fill his time avoiding anything that would be painful. His life was filled with that enough. And he would pursue anything that would give him a pleasure high. Which means that this centurion, this man at the cross, this man who utters this statement, was probably known by name in the local brothels. It means he was probably uh, addicted in some ways to a, a substance of some kind, whether he was an alcoholic or a drug user. The, the man is, think of it this way, a legal outlaw. That's what he is. He can do whatever he wants in Judea when he's off the clock because no one's going to tell him anything otherwise. He is a centurion for the Romans, the occupying Romans. So he's a professional officer, he's religiously polytheistic, he's a practicing pagan. But we also note that the centurion, it would appear that he oversaw the execution of Jesus. As the commander in charge, the centurion not only directly oversaw Jesus' scourging, he was personally responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. The man at the cross, this centurion, was directly responsible for sanctioning and orchestrating the brutal treatment we've seen Jesus endure over the last seven hours. Now, though he very unlikely was in the group that was gambling for Jesus' possessions, history tells us that centurions were actually paid handsome salaries. Like those in his command, this man was also oblivious to the truth of who he had scourged and crucified. Which leads us to the fourth thing we can note about the centurion, and that is that he was antagonistic towards Jesus. Now, initially, as you read through this one description, this one little nugget about the centurion, it might be hard to reach that conclusion that he was antagonistic. Okay, maybe he's just doing his job with the scourging. He's just doing his job uh, doing the crucifixion. He's just doing what he always does. How can you build the case that it, w- it became personal for him? Well, I think Mark actually tells us this. Mark describes the centurion, look at it again, as someone who stood opposite Jesus. Now, the phrase stood opposite him can obviously refer to the centurion's geographical location and proximity to Jesus, that he's standing next to Jesus. But the phrase itself in the Greek can infer, it can imply something much deeper than his geographical location. The phrase can indicate his emotional or psychological position in proximity to Jesus. The phrase literally means that this centurion, as Mark says it, opposed Jesus as an adversary, that he felt hostility towards Jesus, that he was literally antagonistic. It's interesting that this battle-hardened, Jew-hating, pagan-practicing centurion, this outlaw who had brutally scourged Jesus, had crucified him, all the while remaining antagonistic towards him. By the end of his seven-hour experience, he breaks down and he verbally declares. He says it out loud. For the whole world to hear, he cries out from the cross 
that that man was truly the Son of God. Now consider for a moment the drastic nature of this seven-hour transformation. I mean, during the few hours that he was there, the calloused heart of an angry man willing to scourge and crucify an innocent prisoner would ultimately soften towards the prisoner's cause. That's kind of crazy. Consider that a pagan, immoral man who is uninterested in spiritual things, he ends up uttering, after seven hours at the cross, he utters one of the most theologically significant statements in human history. A man vehemently opposed to everything that Jesus stood for, antagonistic towards Jesus for hours, would ultimately accept and then publicly declare Jesus for who he really was. By the end of his experience, the man who had nailed a sign on the cross mocking Jesus as the king of the Jews, he now affirms that Jesus is more than a king. He calls him God. Now, what was it that so radically transformed a man who was initially so blatantly opposed to Jesus to soften to Jesus' cause? I think the answer is very simple. What changed, what caused the transformation was that the man watched the way Jesus had endured the cross. Imagine how different an experience this was not the man's first rodeo. This, is, this was not his first crucifixion. This was not the first prisoner he had scourged, not the first man he had executed. This was in some ways commonplace for him. It was, it was a habit. He knew what he was doing. He was kind of callous towards the whole proceeding. Imagine how different an experience this had been for a man who had personally crucified and executed countless men, aside from the ones that he had gutted in battle. In the midst of Jesus' excruciating experience, the man saw something he had never seen before. The man saw a supernatural peace, a peace that passed understanding. He observed that in the way that Jesus handled his accusers, he saw an amazing grace. When Jesus from the cross asked God to forgive his enemies, that was abnormal. He had never heard someone from a cross say that before, and he witnessed genuine love. In the way that Jesus accepted his impending death, most people from the cross would shrill back in horror. They would fight it for everything they were worth. But this man, when he sees Jesus, he doesn't see fear on the cross. He witnesses an abnormal strength. The centurion, he personally experienced the three hours of darkness. He felt the earthquake. The man saw the lights come back on. He witnessed the veil in the temple being torn from top to bottom. And before breathing his last, no doubt the words that Jesus had cried out from the cross, it is finished into your hands, I commit my spirit no doubt those words were still ringing in his ears. It was unlike anything he'd ever seen or heard before. His statement, 
truly, or, or literally, certainly, without, doubt, without a doubt, it is true, this man was the son of God. And the phrase son of God in the original language literally means the offspring of God. See, the statement, it affirms the uniqueness of his experience. A man so familiar with the human reaction to a Roman crucifixion had never before seen a man handle himself the way that Jesus had. The way that Jesus handled himself towards the experience of the cross, there was peace in place of torment. And the way that Jesus handled himself towards his accusers and enemies, there was love in the place of hate. And the way that Jesus handled himself towards coming death, there was acceptance and surrender in the place of fear and resistance. When the centurion witnessed the events of that day, he considered that they were so abnormal, so contrary to the human spirit, this man of war was left with only one logical conclusion concerning Jesus. No man would handle it the way that he did, which means that he had to have been otherworldly. His conclusion, truly this man was the son of God. Now, I want to make an observation here. Think of it. This centurion, a man who had never heard Jesus teach or preach a sermon, a man who more than likely had never witnessed with his own eyes Jesus perform a miracle, a man who probably had never even heard of Jesus until he saw it on the form that was submitted, the form commanding him to be scourged and executed. This centurion, he was drawn to Jesus for one reason, the way that Jesus handled the cross. Jesus, he demonstrated something in the midst of his greatest adversity that the centurion couldn't articulate in any other way but simply chalking it up to God. You know, it's been said, you've heard it, that your life might be the only Bible a person ever reads. And since this is indeed the case, as it were with Jesus, it then becomes equally true for you that the most powerful lesson your life will ever communicate to the world around you is the way that you handle your greatest adversity. I'll tell you, I have seen Jesus demonstrated over the last month in a radical way, in a powerful way, in a tangible way, through the way that friends of mine and friends of yours have handled tough adversity. When I've examined and watched the way that Matt Sewell and Shannon have handled the experience that they were catapulted into, I'll be honest and I'll tell you in front of everyone, I have seen Jesus in a powerful way. And it's encouraging it's tangible, it's real, because the way that people handle adversity, the way that the believer handles adversity, the way that the person who is following and emulating Jesus handles adversity, the world looks at with no explanation. The world looks at and says, that's not normal, it's not natural, it has to be otherworldly. Please realize that the power of the gospel demonstrated through your life is not nearly as potent during times of joy as it is during times of pain. For, though the world has much advice, much counsel on how a person might enjoy the good times, 
The world offers no counsel on how to endure pain. Theodore Roosevelt stated that nothing in this world is worth having or worth doing unless it means effort, pain, and difficulty. He said, I have never in my life envied a human being who led an easy life. However, I have envied a great many people who led difficult lives and led them well. When you go through your adversity and when you rest onto the anchor of your soul, when you rest on Jesus, when you rest on the spirit of God dwelling within you and when you endure with peace and with joy, even in sorrow, I tell you, your friends, look at you and they say, I want what that person has because that's not normal. That's not natural. The man standing there, the centurion, what attracted him to Jesus is he saw something in Jesus he had seen in no man ever before. The way that Jesus handled the cross caused him to declare that he was truly the son of God. Now before we transition, there's one more thought concerning the centurion. You know, I find it interesting that the only formal revelation that the centurion had was the formal accusation that the religious leaders had proposed concerning Jesus. The the only thing that he knew about the man that he was crucifying is that the accusation against him read that he was or claimed to be the king of the Jews. And yet, after his experience with Jesus on the cross, don't you find it interesting that his conclusion isn't that Jesus was the king of the Jews? His conclusion was that Jesus was God. Now, where in the world did the idea that the concept that Jesus could be God, how did that enter into his psyche? I mean, where did the notion come from? I think the answer is interesting. Don't forget that there were religious leaders around the cross hurling up accusations. They were making mockery of him, not only calling him the king of the Jews, but also saying that he was the Christ calling him the Messiah. You see, I'm of the opinion that the idea that Jesus could have been the son of God, that Jesus was more than just a king, came from the accusations, the mockery of the skeptics at the cross. And it's a powerful thought. Consider it, that when it was all said and done, this centurion concluded by his own reasoning, through his own observations, that Jesus was indeed the man his skeptics were claiming he wasn't. That's powerful to me. That even in the skeptical arguments that the world hurls at Jesus, when a person will take a moment for themselves and take a step back and use their own reasoning and their own observations, I think they end up reaching a radically different conclusion. Well, we're also told, verse 40, that there were women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and of Joses, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So Mark, providing us a second group there, the crucifixion, he tells us there were also women at the cross. So the centurions, the the accusers, the other rebels, 
the passerbys, you now have this group of women. Mary Magdalene uh, is mentioned here, a woman who was from the city of Magdala. She, scripture tells us, had been possessed formerly with seven demons before Jesus had liberated her from her torment. She's there at the cross. We're told that Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joses, according to Mark chapter 6, verse 3, this Mary is actually the mother of Jesus as well. James, Joses are brothers of Christ. So Mary, his mom, is at the cross there with Mary Magdalene and also Salome. Salome was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, making Salome the aunt of Jesus. Interestingly enough, Salome was also the mother of two of Jesus' closest disciples, that being James and John, making James and John cousins of Christ. Sadly, no one other than John found themselves present at the cross. None of the other disciples, Peter, not James, no one else, would come, only John and this group of women. And Mark describes them for us as those who followed and ministered to him. This word followed, it's an interesting word. It's the Greek word aklatheo, which means literally to walk along the same road. They followed Jesus. They walked along the same road. And in mentioning this and providing this word, Mark is describing who these women were. This was a group of women that were genuine disciples of Jesus. They followed Jesus. They walked along the same road as Jesus. They had each, in their own unique way, encountered Christ but they were each willing to follow him wherever the path might lead. And we're told that they ministered to him. This is the Greek word diakoneo, which means to literally serve or to wait at tables. We'll find later on that it's the same word we'll translate into English, the word deacon. It's interesting that the apostles probably emulated their office of deacon after the ministry of these women, which means that these women were the first deacons. It's an interesting idea. But the word, it describes what these women did. Okay, so they followed Jesus, describing who they were. They were disciples. But then they ministered, which describes what they did as followers of Christ. These women, they focused their time and their attention onto doing what? onto practically serving Jesus by caring for the practical needs of the ministry. They followed him all over the place, from Galilee here to Jerusalem, practically serving Jesus. I love it. Luke chapter 8 tells us that in addition to serving, they also provided. Luke says that they provided for him from their own sustenance, which means that they served and they gave, which is a mark of a genuine disciple. Which leads us to the observation that these women, they present for us, I think, a really perfect picture of what a true disciple of Jesus looks like. As followers of Jesus, their journey had undeniably led them to a destination they hadn't expected. Calvary, a cross, 
And while the rest of Jesus' followers were nowhere to be found, had all fallen by the wayside, these women looked on from afar, undeterred, and their pursuit of Christ. And please understand that the phrase that they were looking on from afar, it shouldn't be viewed as a criticism. First, they were close enough that Jesus from the cross could provide instructions to both Mary and John. So they're not that far away. Jesus can speak to them. They're close enough that no doubt Jesus was encouraged by their presence. I'm sure he would continuously look around to see if Peter would come by or James, and they wouldn't. No doubt these women encouraged him. And you can't underestimate the personal risk that came with being identified with Jesus at a Roman execution. You know, it's interesting to me that there was only one simple distinction between these faithful women at the cross and the rest of the disciples nowhere to be found. These women, if you examine them, if you consider them, these women, they followed Jesus because of who he was to them. He had touched their lives in powerful ways. Their love for Jesus, their desire to serve Jesus was birthed as a response of his service to them and love for them. It was reactionary. And because their motivation was Christ-centric and not self-centered, they were willing to follow Jesus no matter where the journey would lead, even death on a cross. And yet, in contrast, there were many others who followed Jesus for what they believed Jesus could do for them. Note the distinction. These women followed Jesus because of who Jesus was to them. There were others who followed Jesus for what they believed Jesus could do for them. It's a subtle distinction with powerful implications. These other people, the disciples, they also loved Jesus and they served Jesus and they followed Jesus as long as it proved personally beneficial. And, and yet, when we see that Jesus failed to meet their expectations, when serving Jesus required personal sacrifice, when following Jesus meant that they would come to a cross and would require death, well, since I'm pursuing Jesus more for what I'm gonna get versus who he is, and wow, we are now at a cross, it became more than they bargained for. And as a consequence, they were nowhere to be found. May I ask you this morning, what kind of disciple are you? What kind of follower are you? If you're following Jesus for selfish reasons, I'm going to make a prediction. If you're following him for selfish motivations, for what you can get out of it, you will inevitably choose a more convenient way when your path finds itself at a cross, and it will. However, if you're following Jesus because of who he is, because of what he's done in your life, then I'll make another prediction. Since it's Christ-centric and not self-centered, you will not only be willing to follow him to a cross, but as demonstrated by these women, you'll be the first to experience the glory that will soon follow. Verse 42, now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the, the day before the Sabbath, it's Friday afternoon, the Sabbath began at 6 p.m. on Friday, would continue to 6 p.m. on Saturday, that we're told Joseph 
of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And he summoned the centurion and he asked him if he had been dead for some time. And so when he found out from the centurion, Pilate granted, or literally he gave as a present, the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought fine linen. He took Jesus down from the cross. He wrapped him in the linen. He laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of a rock. And he rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, Joseph, observed where he laid. Let's get back to our scene of activity. Things are now progressing. Jesus died approximately at 3 p.m., give or take. The darkness lifts from the city, the veil's torn, Jesus cries out and breathes his last. His death, however, occurred earlier than was to be expected. Roman crucifixions were more PR event than they were effective execution. They would take days. 13 days was the longest recorded execution uh, from a cross. Uh, 13 hours the shortest, according to Roman records. Jesus dies at 6, which means that, obviously, Pilate's surprised. And the explanations, I think, are simple, from the, the scourging to just the overarching experience, the emotional and spiritual experience. Very few crucifixions came after everything that Jesus had already previously endured. So he dies at 3. Somewhere between 3, 4 o'clock, give or take, Joseph of Arimathea comes to Pilate. He asks for the body of Jesus, desiring to bury Jesus into his family tomb versus Jesus suffering the same fate of most who were crucified, for the most part being thrown into a ditch, a commons man tomb. Now, with the Sabbath beginning at 6 p.m., and Joseph petitioning Pilate, 4 o'clock-ish, his window of opportunity to get the body down from the cross and to the tomb it's a short window. He's got to be moving through this. Now, before we get to the rest of the events and how things take place, what do we know of Joseph? It's an interesting character. He's an interesting character because we have no mention of him before this moment. However, he is included in all four gospel accounts. Kind of an anomaly. Not a lot of people are mentioned in all four uh, gospels. We know first that he was from the town of Arimathea. Arimathea was situated about 25 miles north of Jerusalem in the region uh, of the tribe of Ephraim. We also know that he was a prominent council member. The word prominent means that he was honorable, that he was respected, that he was a man of good standing. Luke tells us that in addition to this, he was just. He was a good man. The word also indicates that Joseph was probably a man of considerable wealth and considerable power. You would need some kind of clout, right, to summon a meeting with the Roman governor. For him to secure a meeting immediately with Pilate, hey, money talks, and Joseph had plenty of it. We know that he's a council member, meaning that Joseph is a member of the formal Jewish Sanhedrin. According to the Talmud, which was written sometime after this, during this time period, there were only 14 known honorable counselors. 
this was a period of time where the Jewish religious leaders were known for their corruption. And in the midst of it all is Joseph of Arimathea, a man of good standing. We're also told that he was waiting for the kingdom of God, which means like others in the religious community, those that were associated with Jesus' birth, Simeon and Anna, this man too was eagerly waiting the fulfillment of the messianic promises concerning the coming Messiah, those promises in the Old Testament. This probably explains why a man from Arimathea had purchased a new tomb in Jerusalem. According to some of the Old Testament promises, when the Messiah would return, when the Messiah would be revealed to Israel, those tombs in Israel would be the first to be opened and those lying in them, the first to be resurrected from the dead. A man of wealth, a man of power, a man of good standing, a man waiting for the coming of the Messiah, put his money where his heart was. Though from Arimathea, though having a family tomb in Arimathea, he decides that he wants his family to be in Jerusalem for he's waiting for the Messiah. According to Matthew and John, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Which is interesting. A disciple secretly, for he feared the Jews. Though a member of the Sanhedrin, but a closet disciple of Jesus, we're also told by Luke that this man had not consented to the decision to have Jesus executed. Not more unlikely because we're told that all members had voted against Jesus, that Joseph was probably left out of the vote altogether. Don't forget that the whole trial took place under the cover of darkness. Could be that Joseph is just now even learning that Jesus has been crucified. Though Mark only describes Joseph's involvement and the events, according to John 19, he had a partner in crime. We're told that Nicodemus, who had at first come to Jesus at night, John chapter 3, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds worth. Like Joseph, Nicodemus was wealthy. He was an influential member of the Sanhedrin. History tells us he was probably the third wealthiest man in Jerusalem, second to the high priest Annas and Caiaphas. He was a teacher in Jerusalem. In John 3, Jesus actually calls him the teacher, which means that in the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus was the most well-known, well-respected teacher, scholar of the law. Both of these men are closet disciples of Jesus. They love Jesus. They have a heart for Jesus. But you have to ask, why had they both kept their position a secret? Well, we're told that they feared the Jews, but the answer is a little deeper than that. The problem with both Joseph and Nicodemus is that they kept their loyalty to Jesus secret because they feared the repercussions that would come with being identified with Jesus. Each of these two men, they were well connected. They understood the political climate was stacked against Jesus. They feared that being a known disciple of Jesus would cost them. It would cost them deeply. 
They feared it would cost their social position, their political power, their livelihood, their friends, even their reputation. These were things that they weren't willing to let go of, so they kept their loyalty and affinity for Jesus a secret. You know the brutal, honest truth is that neither of these two men were disciples at all. That's the reality. They thought they were, intellectually they considered themselves disciples of Jesus, but they were tragically deceived. Understand that you can't genuinely follow a person or a movement without being willing to identify yourself with that person or movement, even if it comes at great personal risk. I mean, we have a word to describe someone who thinks they're part of a movement, but really aren't. We call them a poser. And in much the same way, when it comes to Jesus, please realize that without being willing to A, identify yourself with him, and B, accept the reality that following him carries repercussions, you can't be considered a follower of Jesus. It's interesting that Jesus tells anyone who would come after him, who would follow him, who I would identify with him. He tells them up front what? Count the cost. He tells them this for a reason. Why? Because following Jesus costs. Sometimes it costs deeply. Sometimes it costs family and friends and reputation. All of the things these two men were worried about losing. They would have to let go of if they really wanted to be a follower of Jesus. But also, I think the most radical, powerful exhortation in this regard was found in Matthew 10. Because Jesus tells, he tells us, he says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, whoever identifies himself with me before men, him I will confess with my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me or refuses to identify with me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. You must identify with Jesus and count the cost to truly be a follower. And these two men hadn't, well, they hadn't until now. Because understand, it's never too late to count the cost to identify with Jesus. And though neither of these men had been willing to publicly stand for Christ before this moment, upon seeing the crucified Jesus in contrast to the blatant immorality and viciousness of the so-called religious leaders of Israel, both Joseph and Nicodemus were now stirred to action. They both understood that it was time to come out and take a stand, that they could no longer sit on the sidelines. And what changed? What changed so that now they were willing to identify themselves with Jesus? Understand, it wasn't that the political climate got any easier. They had just crucified Jesus with an illegal trial. It wasn't as though now the personal cost of identifying with Jesus would have lessened. Not, not, not in the slightest. I mean, imagine what the last few hours had looked like for these men. Like the centurion, the darkness, the tearing of the veil. See, I'm convinced that as the brightest religious minds of Israel, Joseph and Nicodemus, were willing now to count the cost and identify themselves with Jesus because they realized what Jesus was actually doing on that tree. I believe that as the veil was torn, they both recognized the significance of the moment, 
I think they both realized that on the cross, Jesus was taking upon himself the righteous wrath of God as the perfect permanent sacrifice for sins so that they could now, they now could boldly approach the throne of grace. Neither of them had ever seen the Holy of Holies before. You see, the core reality was that the more they learned, the more they saw, what they experienced by watching Jesus on the cross it was enough to push a secret follower into now being a public disciple. For if you truly understand God's grace bestowed towards you, cost Jesus everything, then it becomes much easier to count the cost of following him. When you see what Jesus did for you, then it becomes easier to lay down your life for him, at least it should. Mark tells us that coming and taking courage, Joseph petitioned Pilate for his body. Taking courage. The Greek word indicates that, that he did not shun or dread fear, but approached in boldness. These men decide it's time to go on the record. And though they would have to live with their inaction concerning Jesus' death, they were finally willing to get off the sidelines. Mark tells us that Pilate granted the body to Joseph. He brought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, laid him in the tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Luke's account is very specific that the act of taking down the body was limited to only Joseph. That Joseph went to take down the body, while Nicodemus, it would appear, went to the tomb to get things prepped for the burial. Don't forget, the time is ticking. They're getting ready for the Sabbath. Think of the experience for this rich man. Okay, so Pilate says, you can go get the body. And he can't get anyone to help him with it. The Roman soldiers aren't going to help him with it. The Jewish leaders aren't going to help him with it. The women that are the bystanders aren't going to help. This man was given permission. So he goes to Golgotha and he's got a certificate. He presents it to the centurion. I can take the body. This is following the, 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 the formal pronouncement of his death. And then what does he do? He has to get a ladder. Not, not too tall of a ladder, more of a step ladder, so that he can get to the nails. He first removes the nail from his feet. Jesus slumps down. And then he's trying to hold Jesus as he's prying out these deep embedded nails from the timber through his hands. He's bloody in the process. Jesus' bowels have loosened. It's a grotesque experience. And then what does he do? He takes Jesus to a tomb that had been hewn out of the rock. This indicates that it was a very costly purchase by Joseph. John tells us that it was in the place where he was crucified, a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb that no one had ever laid. Once again, one location, Golgotha, a garden, and a rich man's tomb, the Mount of Olives. John also then tells us that they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in strips of linen and spices. They buried him as the custom of the Jews was to bury. And that's an important phrase, the custom of the Jews. Joseph is carrying the body of Jesus. 
His bones are exposed. His back is in tattered ribbons. He's got a hole in his side that's still oozing blood and liquid plasma. And he brings the body and they lay Jesus down on this piece of cloth and they would first wash him. You know, you never think, who took the crown of thorns off Jesus? It was Joseph and Nicodemus. Think of the experience of pulling the thorns from his brow and then taking water and washing his wounds and cleaning him up. Once the body was clean, they would take strips, according to John, and they would tie together the ankles. They would tie together the knees. They would tie together the arms to the chest. Uh, the way that the tombs worked is that the body would lay there for a few years until everything had decomposed, only leaving the bones. They would come back into the tomb, collect the bones, place them into a smaller box, a smaller container. And they would put it into a shelf. This is how the, the, the burial process would take place. So, so they bound Jesus, not to mummify him, but they bound him to keep the bones together, basically, so that as he decomposes, as things loosen, that everything's contained. So they bound him in this cloth. And then they begin to fill the cloth with spices. This is, this is not uh, embalming. It's basically to keep down the stench of decomposition. A hundred pounds worth of spices covers Jesus' body. And then they fold over the piece of cloth, tying him together. He would look like a mummy, not mummified. And then they roll over a stone across a small entrance, a stone probably weighing somewhere around five tons. This would ensure that there were no wild animals that would stray into the tomb, that would disturb the body. Thieves would have a hard time breaking into such a tomb. Jesus is laid to rest. You know, this day, it had begun with Jesus being found into the hands of a hateful world. But you know, the day ended, it came to a close with Jesus being found in the loving hands of disciples. I, I love the picture of that. The day began with Jesus in the hands of a violent world full of hatred. But the day ended with his body being cared for by the tender touch, the loving care of disciples. And you know, in like manner, one day our bodies that are bruised and bloodied by the hands of an equally sinful and hateful world, there will come a day when it closes and we're resurrected and transformed by the loving hands of a gracious Lord. As with Jesus, death, it's inescapable, it's unavoidable. But as with Jesus, death is not the end of the story but actually is a gateway to a very glorious moment for death would give way, as we'll see next week, to a resurrection.